The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I'm also a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the guy who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, or important books. Sometimes I hang out with experts, fans, and other guests just to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And today, it is my pleasure to be joined by Amani Perry. She is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University, and she's also the author of six books, including Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, Vexy Thing on Gender and Liberation, May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem, and her most recent book, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Amani, so good to see you. It's good to see you, too. I am so happy to talk to you. And before I start, I always start with what I'm drinking. And because I'm on week two of COVID and I've been battling this thing, I'm not drinking my normal coffee. I'm drinking tea. I'm drinking a pear latte and I put a little ginger and a little honey and a little turmeric in it too to help me recover a little faster. That sounds good. I have another suggestion, which is make turns into a, a, a toddy or get a separate toddy. Have your tea and then toddy because that'll... That'll soothe your throat and chest. Yes, it will. It'll soothe my soul, too. (laughs) (laughs) These days, I might need that. Yeah, I may have to turn this into a toddy after the interview. Trust me, you don't want me having no toddy before the interview. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So, first of all, you're the author of six books, and I listed four of them. The reason why I started with those four books is because all of those books came out within 12 months of each other, just about, right? I mean, three of them came out in 2018. Year and a half. Year and a half, okay. Three came out in 2018, and then uh, Breathe came out in 2019. How does that happen? I sort of still don't know. I mean, it partially happened because I've always worked on multiple things at once. And then, well, all the books came out in 2018, I had been working on for years. And it just so happened that I sort of finished them around the same time, and then production schedules, because they were three different presses, kind of happened independently. I did not anticipate it. I did not choose that. I probably, if I could have spread them out a little bit more, I, I would have liked to do that. But it wound up being fine. But it really is, you know, my process is one where I don't um, ever try to force writing. So if I'm feeling stuck, or I just don't know where to go, I move to the next thing and come back to it. So it was kind of like a a round robin process. Wow. Okay. So I I got so many process questions, but I guess I first, I should start with Breathe. It's the most recent book that you wrote. Yeah. And it's a very different book than anything you've written before, in my estimation. Talk about what Breathe is and why you wrote it. Breathe, it is actually a three-part letter to my sons. It contains a lot of elements of actually the things that I do write to my sons and, and talk about regularly, but it it's about what it means to come of age in this moment that is so fraught and so difficult. It's a hard time. It's always been a hard time to come of age as a Black person in this society. It is particularly difficult now. And part of what I wanted to communicate, and I want people to witness this, right? It's an internal conversation, but it's also an invitation to uh, a suite of witnesses that notwithstanding the difficulty, there's great beauty in Black life. And there's also incredible resources that come from those who came before, our elders, our ancestors. And, And so it's about how one fashions a life under difficult circumstances that can nevertheless be beautiful and how one becomes what I think of as like a warrior for justice in the tradition, right? Do you know how to, how to build a life that is deeply meaningful uh, and of service to the world. And so it has three movements, fear, fly, and fortune. And I guess part of the underpinning is, you know, we have this impulse to keep our children safe, but we cannot constrain them spreading their wings and taking that is in part the struggle, I think, for for Black parents. So what prompted 
you to write this one? Because I, I know, like you said, some of these projects you were writing over a long period of time, but Breathe sort of came more quickly in terms of the impulse to write it, no? It did. I write about my children all the time on social media, and my editor, Vegan Press, said, would you like to write something of that, you know, sort of inconsistent with those posts that you make? And a lot of them are kind of funny and silly. You know, my kids are a trip. But when I sat down to do it, I moved into the zone that I that tends to be the most intimate form of conversation I have with with both of my sons, which is, you know, has some gravity to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it turned into a project that was much more vulnerable than anything I'd ever written, but in some sense re- dependent on everything that I've ever studied, right? Like so many of the resources I feel I have at my disposal that I want to share with young people come from you know, the generations reading them, thinking with them. So so the genre of the letter, was that mm. part of the intimacy that you were attempting to conjure? In other words, you could have written it in lots of different ways, but is letter writing actually a form of emotional and intellectual intimacy for you? Yes. Letters are an outdated form, but they're really important <laughs> to me. I think that there's a way that we are willing to be naked in the form of a letter that is very different from an email even, and certainly different from a a conversation often. There's just a vulnerability to it because you you put it into the world, right? Even if you handwrite a letter, there's no feeling of control, right? You sort of handing over your heart and that thing is out there somewhere and you don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know. And so there's, So, yeah. And of course, you know, there's Baldwin's letter to his nephew. I was thinking a lot about Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk and the chapter of the passing of the firstborn. And in my book, that essay where he talks about the death of a child kind of resonates with the stories I'd heard about my uncle who died when he was 11 years old. And the kind of awe I always had for my grandmother that she was able to continue had 11 other children was able to produce joy in the face of what had to be just an absolutely devastating loss. And so there's this way that our personal histories and that literary convention, right? Those kind of, that kind of reflective literary convention come together, right? You know, when Baldwin said, you know, you think you're alone in the world and then you read, it's true, right? You find something in other people's stories. So Yes, that's kind of... No, I mean, I think that's right. I found so much more hope. I mean, when I think about Du Bois, you know, in Souls of Black Folk, and I think of how he copes with loss and death and the specter of the veil and all that stuff, it's powerful and it's compelling, but I didn't leave hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see how one could, but I don't. When Ball, when I, I left more hopeful in okay. the, the first chapter of The Fire Next Time, but with you, I walked away from this book feeling incredibly... I realize how daunting this moment is emotionally and all the structural factors, white supremacy lingering, but I also left feeling incredibly anchored by our tradition. I felt like you gave us something to hold on to and something to walk away with that could make us more hopeful. How important for you was that hopeful note to Was that intentional or is that just who you are? That's so interesting because, you know, Mariam Kaba has, she says repeatedly, hope is a discipline. I used to say hope is a praxis, but I prefer hope as a discipline, which is, you know, I do think we have a responsibility. We bring children into the world. We cannot be overwhelmed by the devastation. Our job is to practice hope, even if we don't feel it, right? And so I didn't feel especially hopeful, but what I was trying to do is exactly that, right? Like hold on to what we have to hold on to right? Which is the tradition. And you can tell the story of our lives on these shores in terms of no matter what we have done, we keep getting knocked down. But you can also tell the story is no matter what has happened, we keep standing up. And I prefer the latter as a message for young people, right? Mm. That you keep getting back up. So for me, there's a part of the way that we read history that gives us the ability to go on. And that's what I was trying to capture. It doesn't necessarily feel hopeful, 
but it is it is a discipline that is oriented <laughs> to like you know keeping us going there's a profound and deep love for black people that cut and black stuff not just black people but every dimension of black life comes through in your writing in terms of the subjects you choose the way you talk about us but in breathe for me it's almost like you bragging on black folk right like like there's a way that you're talking to your sons about us so that they understand how awesome we are yeah i mean i i think it's true you know one of the most insidious things about this moment is that people act as though things are somehow easier for Black people. Mm. The narrative around affirmative action or the narratives that we hear about, you know, the welfare state is this mythology. And it is the exact opposite. You know, so I was having a conversation with my older son recently talking about, as a Black child, you go into school and you're not just thinking about the various academic subjects. You're navigating the biases of teachers you're navigating the biases of your peers. You have to watch for how people are watching you. You are burdened at a very early age with managing white people's anxieties, right? And so there's a brilliance. I mean, one of the ways that I, I, I think about, for example, the, um, you know, whether it's freestyling or other for jazz improvisation is, or double dutch, right? One of the signs of Black artistic genius is our ability to think ahead of the moment. You are anticipating what's mm. down the pike as you're doing something. That's extraordinary. It's a gift that is born of terrible circumstances, but I think it's really important that we keep in mind what it means to have to think on multiple registers at once as something that's amazing, that is an intellectual, kind of intellectual um, majesty that goes unspoken and often unrecognized even by us, right? Yeah, so spotlighting that is key. You wrote a letter to your sons because you have two boys. Yes. Were there people who pushed back against that? You know, there's a way that sort of white supremacy and state violence and all these things are are kind of framed as things that black men have to deal with. And there can be an erasure of black girls. There can be a way that, you know, we sort of understate the impact of, of these systems and structures on black women and girls and femmes. How did you navigate that, particularly as a Black feminist, as you're writing this letter to your sons? I can't sort of be burdened by anxieties about the potential for being misperceived. You know, I talk in the book about an experience of assault that I had. And through that experience, I tried to offer a lesson, a dual lesson, right? So one is about, I want to offer the lesson as a testament for them to think about how you navigate the world as a boy and man, but also about the kind of vulnerability that boys and men experience too that often gets denied, right? So it is pushing against the constraints of gender, even though I'm writing to my two sons, right? Which is about One, I don't want them to have narrow ideas about what it means to be a boy or man. I want them to be able to access the full range of emotions that they have. I want them to be able to give voice to their vulnerability. I want them to be able to testify when they have tears. But I also have expectations about how they treat other human beings across the boundaries of gender, gender identity and expression and the like. And so so it is a feminist text because everything I write is a feminist text. But I also think that it's important, you know, to tell the stories about girlhood and the relation to daughters and the like. People sometimes ask me, how would the book have been different if you had daughters? And the thing that I keep coming to is it would be virtually identical, but I would, I would imagine I would have talked more about prioritizing one's own well-being mm-hmm. and not allowing your life to be one where you serve everyone but yourself. That seems to me to be a lesson that we still don't communicate enough to girls. But the other parts, largely similar. Hmm. I want to pick your brain as a writer and as a reader. But before okay. I do, do you mind if I just ask you a couple questions about these other books? Because you, you wrote so many of them. I, I feel, I, I, <laughs> it feels irresponsible to not mention them. So, Vexy Thing. Yes. I remember seeing early drafts of Vexy Thing. Mm-hmm. And it was great then, but where you landed... 
by the end in terms of how sophisticated the text is is really remarkable to me. Help us understand what you were trying to do. Would you say this is your first major intervention into gender theory? Yeah, and it really is. So I was giving talks about Bexie for years, and at one of them, somebody kind of snarkily said, so you're saying gender and patriarchy are everything. And I was like, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Matter of fact. (laughs) Right. In the sense that modern patriarchy was built alongside the transatlantic slave trade, the age of conquest, the age of European empire. So part of what I'm trying to say is that What we think of today as patriarchy is a system of relation of domination, right, where there are, and this is not even all men, but there are a category of men who have access to the power of the nation, state, property, and a recognition before the law who have this dominant role in society, and that that role is what dictates the construction of race. It's what dictated the development of empire. So one, I wanted to say what patriarchy is. It's not just sexist attitudes. It's a relation of power. And many people who have sexist attitudes actually don't have access to the power of patriarchy right, at all. And then I also wanted to, that was a piece of it, like what it is it, right, in terms of how it's been constructed in law and economics and all that stuff. And then I also want to think about the current landscape, right? We have a shift in the economic order in, you know, the last two generations. And we sort of have this capitalism run amok. Everything is a market. How does patriarchy intersect with that, right? Where there's a kind of wild west quality. On the one hand, then we also have necropolitics, mass death, mass incarceration, right? All these forms of domination. So I was trying to give the readers, and I was focused heavily on imagining like the young intellectual interpreting the world to offer something to to them, right? How do you read the world? How do you make political decisions? How do you function as a feminist, not simply as a doctrine, but as a way of reading the world that pushes back against forms of domination that are often gendered? which is sort of like everything. I mean, what's a more patriarchal institution than the prison? It controls your body, exploits your body, like exacts violence, controls your movement. So anyway, I call it my big book of gender theory. It was the most hard, most challenging thing I've ever written. Why? But, you know, it was like, I'm, I'm going to write a worker theory. And that is one of the two. I have one more coming down the pike in I don't know how many years, but yeah. Why was this particular piece of gender theory the most challenging thing you've done? I was trying to keep hold of so many axes of power, right? So the power of the nation state, the power of the economic order, the way laws structure living, and then also ideology. So like you can be a person who is oppressed and have deep ideological commitments to oppression, right? And so like trying to hold on to that also as a truth. I mean, so it's just, it required a synthesis. It required a lot of reading of very old philosophy and and a lot of economic theory. And then I wanted to make it a book that was in conversation with a long history of thinking about gender, but you don't have to have read Marx and Adam Smith and Gayatri Spivak on and on to read the book, right? So that maintaining all those things at once, it was, it was really hard, but it was so rewarding. And I got to tell you, I have a lot of conversations about your work and uh, one of the things that's come up this year is how pe- much people enjoy teaching Vexy thing for that reason. And just a little secret for the audience. When somebody says it's a good teaching book, that can mean one of two things. It can mean that it's, <laughs> <laughs> it can mean they ain't really said nothing new, but it's good for people who need intros. Or it can mean it is making a major intervention, but that it's accessible and compelling as a writerly text such that that the students, both graduate and undergraduate, can learn new things, but also wrap their arms around it. You know, and and I think sometimes that can be a challenge. Sometimes we write so narrowly and we think that to advance theory, we have to be inaccessible, that it's only smart if nobody can read it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, sometimes you have to work for a great text, right? Like sometimes it's a struggle. I feel like I don't like the idea that you should never have to work to read something, right? right? Because these are hard ideas. So sometimes it's hard to access them. Yeah. And Um, and readers have a responsibility too, right? I mean, there's something, yeah. And I always say reading is a muscle. 
you know, sometimes when people, especially my students who complain about, oh, so much reading, and I'm like, the more you do it, the faster it goes, right? Like, it, <laughs> just, it really is. It's like anything else. You, and usually sports metaphors help them because they can understand the, the function of practice, you know, on a court, but not necessarily with reading. But it really is the same kind of thing. And yet I value clarity. And you almost, you almost kind of chicken out of the potential conflict when you don't pursue clarity because you need to make space for people to disagree with you. If people can't figure out what you're saying, they can't really disagree with you. <laughs> oh. yeah. That's a solid point. You wrote about Lorraine Hansberry as well. And again, I enjoy all these books that you've written in the last two and a half years now. But the Lorraine book was very different than the mm-hmm. other two. You made a decision to help us understand the life of Lorraine Hansberry. Why Lorraine Hansberry, first of all? Why her as a subject? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the obvious one is that she's one of the most important figures in the history of American theater, and people did not know her name. Even though virtually everybody has seen some one of the versions of A Raisin in the Sun. Right. You know, folks read it in school, but she was opaque to people. And there was some really serious misinterpretation of her from folks who did know her name, right? And that this idea that she wasn't a radical, that she was kind of just this kind of, you know, woman who wrote this play about Black people trying to be in the middle class and, and not, you know, that she was always thinking about class and race and gender and sexuality as a socialist in the mid 20th century, deeply in her, all these people she's close to from Langston Hughes to James Baldwin to Nina Simone are these people who have had books upon books written about them. I was like, oh no, we have to like, you know, catch up the world on Lorraine Hansberry. And thankfully there's a number of books that are taking different perspectives on her that are coming out. So it was sort of like, I saw this book as an invitation to a revival of understanding who she was and how important she was. One of the things we talked about earlier was the letters. You were saying that the letter is a site of vulnerability. Um, yes. You wrote the letters to your son. And then I was thinking about Lorraine Hansberry's letters, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, please. So, I mean, she, so one, there are letters where she she's brutally honest, right? Like about all kinds of things, right? About her, you know, when she got married, she wrote a letter to her husband I was about to be married. And she was like, yeah, the earth doesn't move for me with you, but you know, it's good. I think we're good together. Right. And um, but, that's rough with a brother ego. But it's a, and it's a beautiful Ernest Hemingway reference too, like to this subtle moment in the sun also rises, which part of why I felt called to write about her is when I looked at her library, we had so many of the same texts, right? So I was like, you know, there are people who write work in theater who can bring a deep understanding of that to telling a story of her life. I can connect to her as a reader, right? So I could look at things at her letters and know what she was referencing because we read, you know, I read many of the same things. Also, her letters, when she didn't like what people said about her work, just were eviscerating. Like there was one she said to someone, you know, you're a remarkable man. You write a lot of words and they're all stupid and that's remarkable, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, so you know, I like I like her toughness. But she was also a scaredy cat and sensitive, you know. So I, I kind of identify with that. I wasn't gonna say that, but I was thinking that like <laughs> yeah. that's fair. You as a writer, it's very difficult to do each of these genres, right? There are people who write biographies for a living and intellectual biographies. And there are people who do theory for a living and there are people who do trade writing and they write opinion pieces or or what have you. And I've seen you operate in all these different spaces. How does one become that kind of writer? Was that a decision you made to say, I want to write across a bunch of different stuff? I'm going to, you've written about hip hop, you've written about race theory, you've written gender theory, you've written intellectual biographies. What is that about? Is that about like, I can't sit still intellectually or is it about, tell me what it is. Yeah, I mean, part of it is one of the ways that I respond to this question is to say, I went to three high schools, I double majored in college, I got multiple graduate degrees. Like, I have trouble choosing, right? I like a lot of stuff. (laughs) But as a writer, I like to start with the question. And then the question I'm trying to answer, and then I think about, well, what are all the things that I know 
that I need to answer the question? And what's the best form for answering the question? So I have to move into different genres if the orientation is not the genre, but the question itself, because not everything can be answered well in the same way. I also think of every piece of writing is a methodological exercise. Like it's an ex- exploration. How, how do I do this? You know, what am I? And that excites me. The process of figuring out like this kind of puzzle like thing. I mean, the other thing that I say is I started out, I was a math person when I was young. And so I started out college as a math major. So I like structure patterns, you know, trying to figure out a puzzle like that kind of thinking is at the heart of everything, whether I'm writing about literature or somebody's life. But I wasn't like, I don't, I don't have a third person piece in the sense that like, I don't, I don't sit outside of myself and say, I want to be the person known for A, B, C, D. Mm. I've never. That, that's that. what I wondered. I want, because, you know, a lot yeah. of writers do that. They're very strategic about sort of what they want their body of work to look like because of what that'll mean for them, either professionally, financially, in terms yeah. of their legacy. I'm not know. that sophisticated or savvy. I mean, there's lots of times when I, had I been operating hmm, in a more sophisticated way, I would have made very different choices. My dissertation was on late 19th century property and contract law. And my first book was on hip hop because that's what I wanted to do for both of them. But, you know, strategically, it would have been a better idea for my first book to be about property and contract law. (laughs) What you spent all those years and hours writing about, right? Amani, by the way, has both a JD and a PhD. Back to the idea of not not being able to choose. And um, an LLM on, and that focused on property and contracts. That's yeah. right. And an LLM. So all that's, and, and yet you're here writing about Lorraine Hansberry. And yeah. you're here writing about gender theory. I mean, how do those degrees, and those disparate traditions inform your writing? Because it's like, for some people, it's like, wait, wait, she went to Harvard Law School and then got a, a PhD at the same time and then went and got an LLM. You did all that to write about hip hop or to write about race or to write about, did you have to do that? Was, was that just an inefficient route? Or, or does all this stuff shape? I don't think it's inefficient because I really believe in the process of learning how to research, how to study, how to read, right? Like, so if you want to be able to read materials across disciplines, right, that has to happen in some structured way, right? If you want to learn how to research and be able to both go into, you know, paper archives, but also, you know, run numbers, that requires different kinds of training, preparation. So I, I feel like I'm always putting um, everything to good use, but I also, I'm just, I'm not going to spend my life on things that I don't feel passionately about. Mm. And I believe in following one's passions. I believe that's the best way you can be disciplined and deeply committed to a project. And so, you know, what's the point of this? You get all this education. It tends not to be a very highly compensated field going into academia. So the thing that you have is, you know, summer's off and the room to write cool stuff and <laughs> research cool right? So I want it to be fun. You talked about the beginning with the question. What kinds of questions, or better yet, is there a overarching question that shapes yeah. your work? One of the overarching questions is why every time we seem to make progress on questions of justice, there is not just retrenchment, but there, you know, the kind of imaginative work of white supremacy takes over such that we wind up like, you know, two steps forward, three steps back, right? The retrenchment, the reinvigoration of the ugliest forces in our society. I want to know how that works because I want to arrest it, stop it. I believe in liberation for all oppressed people. So that's one. And then the other is I'm really interested in how, in the imagination, and particularly in the Black imagination, where we puzzle through these barriers, impediments, sources of suffering in a way that leads to incredible artistic possibilities and ways of expressing ourselves in life. I find Black folks breathtakingly beautiful in how, in the art that resists domination. I want to talk and think about it and I want to do it. You know, I want to produce that. So it's both telling people. So some of the work is telling people about folks who have done this. And some of the work is 
me doing my own version of it. Some people are intellectuals who use writing as just the outlet for their thinking, right? There are people right. who say, I'm a thinker, and you know, whether it's on TV or whether it's on a pen and paper or whatever it is, I just want to get these ideas out. Then there are people who are writers. What are you? I am aspiring to be a writer. When I was eight years old, there were two things I knew I wanted to be, a writer and a mother. Those are the most consistent you know, aspirations in my life. And the other things came in and out. So the craft is just intoxicating to me. So film, and you, you work in film, so you know this, right? You can communicate so much in 10 seconds of film because you have the visual, you have the sonic, and you have language. I am interested in how one can approximate that just with the written word. Mm-hmm. How you can, in a relatively short piece of time, a period of time, engage the senses, feeling, right? Like help people have pictures in their minds. So to me, that exercise of craft, is just intoxicating. It's a project, like trying to get there. And I like that part better than the other side of it. You know, I'm grateful when people like what I've done, but it's, you know, it's the journey that is the best part. Do you, at this stage in your life, identify as a writer? Would you say, I am a writer? Yes. When did you first feel like you owned that title? Even when I was afraid to do it fully, I felt it. Mm. You know, <laughs> like, so yeah. something has been kind of unlatched for me in the last couple of years in terms of confronting the fear. But one of the jokes I have is like, if people saw my laptop, they'd be like, so you actually have much more written than you have ever published. I mean, I I write every day. It's constitutive. It's like reading. Like they're both constitutive of who I take myself to be, how I live, how I function. You know, so I've, I've been a writer for a long time, I'd say just the past couple of years is I've said it publicly. Was there a project that made you feel like you earned the right to say it publicly? Was there a project where you looked at this and was like, okay, I'm a writer? Well, I mean, I do think that looking for Lorraine was huge in that because writing that book changed my life. I mean, I do think of her as a kind of patron saint of mine because it opened so many, her, her life opened lots of doors, both in terms of how people received the book and receiving awards for the book and a kind of, you know, critical reception. But also, you know, Lorraine is a person who had self-doubt, who had fear, and whose mind was always going in a ton of different directions. And she was very critical of herself for that. And then I'm looking at her life and I'm like, well, thank God. And it felt freeing to me, you know, felt like, okay, it's okay that I want to go in so many different directions. I also think her relationship with Nina Simone as a friend, gave her space because, you know, you know, Nina was like, okay, let's put, bring in some classical music, let's bring in some jazz, let's bring in some show tunes, like the, all of this stuff. And she created her own space out of everything that inspired her creatively. And so I feel like that, even though there's not like explicit exchanges between them, I found, yeah. but, you know, people talk about how Hansberry influenced Nina Simone, but I also think Nina Simone gave some freedom to Lorraine Hansberry. So both, in that sense, both of them, and that book in particular, opened a lot for me. What other people, Lorraine Hansberry is the patron saint. Yeah. Um, Who are some other figures who loom large for you? I mean, of course, Morrison. Albert Murray, who I don't think has received his due, but I think is, he's a great chronicler of, was, you know, Black music and Black culture. You know, I disagree with him so much in terms of politics. And I, so I sort of describe him as my tar baby because I can't get unstuck from him even when I want to. <laughs> Thelonious Monk, I, there's something about the way that he plays that played, I keep, say, for me, they're all alive. <laughs> A few weeks ago, Eddie Glaw was on here talking about uh, James Ball and he talks about Jimmy in that same way like, like like he's in the room like he's in the room next door listening to the interview and about to read the manuscript exactly well you live with them you know and and he's another one these people who feel like directly inspirational 
Like another example would be, and it, it's not, it doesn't have to be people who've departed, but there's Body and Soul, which I, I know you know this, but is my favorite jazz standard. And, you know, I have 30 versions of it on my phone. But my favorite is the one by Esperanza Spalding, which is in Spanish. You know, it's like she figured out how to take this standard and make it something, it's true to the, you know, to the original composition, but it feels like a different song. And so like the ability to do that is also something that I just am, am in awe of, you know. As a black woman intellectual, I'm thinking about Lorraine Hansberry again because there's a way that we talk about Hansberry as a student of, say, Du Bois right. or, you know, and there's a way that black women, whether it's Mariah Stewart, whether it's whomever, we, we sort of talk about them as either footnotes to or students of these prominent black yeah. minds as opposed to their interlocutors, as opposed to their teachers, as opposed right. to, their, you know, at best you get muse, which might mean they stole your stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or or, or other stuff. But um, <laughs> another conversation for another time. Okay, yes. But as a Black woman intellectual, how do you safeguard against that? Do you worry about that for your own work? You know, that, that your work will either be footnoted or seen as, you know, subordinate to, or that it'll get erased or co-opted. I mean, how do you, does that tradition of that happening worry you? No, I, I don't. I mean, I do understand why people talk about it and think about it a lot and, you know, talk about erasures and they're like, I just, I have always known there's no such thing as a meritocracy. It's more likely than not that the greatest minds will not ever be recognized or even published. Mm. The world is so profoundly unfair. The structures are so profoundly unfair. So you know, you sort of, I think you sort of put your head down and do the work and try to have it be meaningful and try to allow it to be in the world in a way that somebody, if, if people don't pick it up today, somebody will pick it up in 20 years or 30 years and the like. I just can't be fixated on the unfairness. And, and to be quite honest, I would think it would be obnoxious because I am such a beneficiary of the depth of unfairness in the world, right? To have all this formal education, to have a job that lets me not worry on a day-to-day basis about the basics of life. Those are pretty extraordinary things when you see the landscape, not just of the world, but this country. Now that said, when I do my work, I don't think of myself as a footnote to anybody. Like I don't identify myself as, you know, there's a case, you know, I of course honor my mentors, but I don't think of myself as, a, you know, kind of secondary to anybody. And when I write about women who I think ought to be understood on their terms, I write about them on their terms, but I'm not expending emotional energy worrying about, about that personally. No, it, it makes sense. There's a, a image of, uh, that I always enjoy of um, Maya Angelou. It's a black mm. and white pic. She's like, she's, over, she's leaning over bed. She's apparently writing. And for me, whenever I think about my Angelou writing, I don't know what her writing process looks like, but I imagine she's always, you know, leaning over some bed, relaxing, writing, 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 writing a poem. If I were to draw or paint, if I had that kind of talent, Amani Perry, the writer, where, mm. what would it look like? Where would you be? I'd probably be in my room or on my deck reading because... Reading is, in some sense, the most central part of of writing for me. It's the thing that that makes writing possible. So a lot of the writing happens as a result of everything that feels like it's been poured in, you know, gets poured into me by reading. I have the most raggedy setup for it. Like I just got a real office chair. <laughs> I only have a desk. I borrowed my child's desk. You know, like I, I, I mean, most of my books have not been written at desks. I would say that. They've been written where? In my bed or in a chair on the sofa. Yeah. See, see, this is what I'm saying. This this is why I ask because people don't know this, right? They think that you're sitting in some cushy office, you know, with archival work on the left side and stacks of books on this fancy desk. What it looks like is... You know, I won't ever be posting pictures of this, but it's, you know, there's stacks of paper and books all around. Right. right? Like, 
So it's a, you know, and I like the ritual of, so you have the stacks and stacks of stuff and then you finish with the draft and then you put all the stacks away and then you let it marinate and you come back and they come back like this sort of, so I sort of create like a storm, a mess of a storm. And then, you know, you kind of tidy up and then you create another mess. Like, so there's an aesthetic to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Does that make you feel yeah. like you're really getting down? Like, could you not write if it were too neat? Like, do you need like the messiness in the paper and all that stuff? I don't think I need it, but I'd certainly create it. <laughs> right? <laughs> you make a mess. I also, I should say, and this I think is really important and it's especially important for women, although I think it's important for everybody. I learned to write in very small periods of time. Mm. Um, and particularly after I had children, it was like there was no more eight-hour writing day. And so I had to learn how to be okay with 10 minutes or a half hour and to sort of, you know, compress it. Okay, I have time to do a paragraph. I may not know where the paragraph goes, but it's a good paragraph. And so I'm going to stick it in the, the document. And so the the sort of romantic idea of the conditions that one needs for writing just aren't available to most people. And particularly because of the way gender and labor works, it's almost never available to women. So you have to figure out what you can do within the constraints of your life. So when you say you write every day, some days it could be the paragraph. Occasionally you might steal an hour or two. Is that about the max you get about an hour or two? Mm, I mean, sometimes I get more than that, just not uninterrupted. Uh, like I'll get an hour here and then an hour in the afternoon. I also, it's not linear. So that's part of why I work on multiple projects at once. Cause I may just not be feeling something about this project and it'll go into a file or an email. I mean, I sometimes, and I have people will make fun of me at times. <laughs> Cause I'll be like, I know I had this idea and let me do an email search and I'll find an email I sent to myself 10 years ago. That is <laughs> me like, too. Yeah, that, right. See? Yeah. Or email I sent you. <laughs> there you go, yes. I think I sent this this little graph to make sure it made sense like five years ago. Let me find it. So one of my challenges as a writer is that whatever I'm not working on is the most interesting thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so like I get the idea of saying, you know, all right, this my, my brain ain't on this topic. Let me move to this next thing. I get that. But for yeah. me, the problem is I'm always convincing myself that the other thing is way more interesting and way more urgent. And so sometimes like when I should just be drilling down and just saying, okay, I need another week on this thing to get this thing right. It's much easier for me to go to the memoir and then go back to the policy book and then go back to the such and such. How do you strike that balance between honestly following your passion and not avoiding the toughest parts of writing? So the only thing I feel comparable to that about is footnotes. Right, because I hate I hate footnotes with a passion. They are the devil. They're the devil. I hate them. But with the other stuff, okay, so I have this mantra just in general, and I'm always communicating this to my kids. It's like judging your, your feelings is never particularly useful. So like when you feel like I really don't want to do something, I think it makes more sense to just observe what is it that you don't feel like. And sometimes it's because you don't know what you think yet. You know, if you're frustrated and you're struggling, it can be, I can't say it yet. I have, it hasn't like worked its way to fruition in my mind. So it makes sense to step away from it. Like, I'm not going to sit around and try to figure out what I think for days on end when I just don't know, move to the next thing. So I think it's usable. I mean, it's sort of like the way sadness is usable. When we are sad, we learn something in that process. When we are bored, when we are frustrated, when we sick of everything, there's lessons in all of those feelings. I try to live in a way that allows me to accept the lessons. And then sometimes you work on something for a while and then you're like, you know what? I really don't want to do this. And that's mm. okay too, because life is too short. This article was a terrible idea. <laughs> Let me put this, that's okay. You know, it's if you have a contract for a book, you can't really do that, but. There are so many pressures that are placed on writers where those types of choices aren't as easy to make. So either as an academic, you got to get tenure. So you got to get a project done or you got to pay bills as a working writer and they want the next article. They don't want you to necessarily have time to think about it. And, right. and so, you know, 
does the current environment make it difficult to write good books, to have rich ideas? Because sometimes, I, and I don't mean this with any shade at all, I promise I don't, or, or no more shade than I ever mean anything, is that sometimes I feel like some folk write so much stuff, particularly like articles. Like, I, you know, I, I, had, I saw a guy one time, he was bragging that he had written like 62 articles one year. And I was thinking like, when did you think about them? When did you have time to think about what you're writing? You know, like, I just, I don't know. I, I worry that the current moment doesn't allow for the kind of rich intellectual production that we need. Absolutely. I think that's true. That, but also the value of quantity over the seriousness of an idea, right? Like, so one of the things I often say is, if I had written Horton Spiller's Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, and never written another thing, I would feel like I would still feel like I was the dopest person in the world, right? right. You, you, you write to write a piece that has now shaped three generations of thought in Black studies. But we're at a moment where the sort of the idea of productivity supersedes ideas about depth and rigor and seriousness. So I do think that that and it and it's hard because of their market forces. And those market forces also impact what people even pursue because you can very easily, especially be a graduate student and have people say, yeah, you'll never get a job with that. You have to take it seriously because you got to make a living, right? Like, so it's not, it's not fair to be critical of those people for, you know, trying to make strategic decisions under pressure. We need to talk about it and, and ideally push back against it, right? As people who are seniors scholars. I think we have responsibility to do that, but I get it. I get it. And in some ways I feel like I, I didn't have to be subject to that partially because at my, the beginning of my career was as a law professor. So the article thing was really the thing. And law review articles, you, as long as you follow the formula, you're good. You know, it's just a whole, and you also hear back when you submit articles quickly and you can do multiple submissions at once, unlike in the humanities journal. So so there's a way in which that actually allowed me to work around a lot of that in the first part of my career. So yeah, but yeah, you're, I'm, you're right. That's, that's how it is. And it's terrible. Now that you have started to write books that people read on a wide scale, you getting, you finalists for NAACP awards, you, you know, New York yeah. times notable book for another book. Actually the Lorraine book was a New York times notable book, right? Mm -hmm. Does it change how you think about, the process or what the product is going to be. Do you think like, okay, 50,000 people are going to read this book now instead of like 2,000 as an academic or four people, right? <laughs> Depending on the book, right? <laughs> like, does that change sort of what your goals are, what your process is? Does anything move when you start thinking, I got a lot of people reading this? I mean, I do think a lot more about the emotional register of the reader. What are the, the all of the points of connection with the reader? But it's also made me it's made me feel much happier about the post book being out process because the reality is, and folks who are not in academia don't know this, but so uh, when you write an academic text, so much of what you receive is in the kind of competitive intellectual framework. So people listen to you talk about the book so they can tell you what's wrong with it. That's just the culture of academia. So when I first started doing like book talks that were just people who love reading, I was like, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> like they're nice. <laughs> like there's a sincerity. Like they're not. There's no to, gotcha. There's no yeah, gotcha question coming. Not trying to prove they're smarter than you. And so people who love books are really wonderful, right? Like it's just something so sweet about the simple pleasure of reading. And I like, I like that part. It inspires me to write in ways that can speak to people emotionally even more. You said people who love books. When did you first know you were in love with books? I don't remember not being in love with books. Mm. My first active memories as a child are when I was three, and I learned to read when I was three. And so they have always been part of my daily life. What are you reading now? I just finished, and I wrote a review of Natasha Trethewey's Memorial Drive, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous memoir. I just finished The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which is just stunning. And this it's really dope because it's like, it takes the old genre of the passing novel and does a remix on it. And it's just incredible. I haven't yet read The Nickel Boys. That's probably what I'm going to read next. But there's so many. I mean, we had like 
a literary renaissance generally, but in particular for Black writers. And so there's so much to read. So it's great. I mean, it's just not, there are not enough hours in the day. And that's why I hate you, because uh, <laughs> you you have read, like, you read all the stuff I read, and then you have this whole other stack of fiction that okay, I did I read. love fiction. Yeah, I love fiction. And, and I don't think people understand that either sometimes. How What does fiction reading give you, particularly as somebody who writes... You, yeah. You've done social science stuff with More Beautiful, More Terrible. You've done biographies with the Lorraine book. You've done, I mean, you've done all this stuff, but you reading, so just so y'all understand, like you'll call Imani Perry and I'll be proud that I read something, you know, I'll be like, yo, I read these five books. And she'll be like, yeah, yeah, I read those. I read those last week, but you have to read this <laughs> book. They only made four copies. It came in a Venezuelan village and he's a, a, an 87 year old poet and you have to read it, but you have to read it in the original language. And I'll be like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, how did you even know this book exists? Like, you find the most obscure but beautiful texts. Yeah. So when I was in grad school, I had this game where I would try to find a book to read that Cornell West had not read. <laughs> so I would come to class with, you know, or the office with a book, and I'd be like, this is a great book. And then he inevitably, every time, he would be like, yeah, but the argument in chapter three or on page 168. <laughs> And so I was like, I want to be like that dude. And he would read five hours every day. I mean, I think he still does, right? I just loved that. And, you know, this idea of like reading broadly and deeply and having your imagination excited in so many different ways. Fiction is my first love. You know, I used to fight with my dad because he he tried to get me to read nonfiction when I was young. And I was like, yeah, I'm not interested. I also had this fight with both of my parents where they wanted me to take social science classes in college. And I was like, nah, I'm not really. They got me to do one mm. taught by Joshua Gamson, who actually wound up writing the biography of Sylvester, the like, you know, the disco yes. thing, right? Yeah. So that tells you like how far into social science <laughs> I was willing to go. Um, <laughs> you know, I did. I is sociology of culture. It was a brilliant class. My attendance was was not good, but the course, the the readings were really good. <laughs> but yes, I you know I like the imagination. You know, that's the thing. You know, I like to have my imagination excited. And how does your how does an excited imagination impact the work you do as a nonfiction writer? Here's the thing, you know, how you tell a story is always as important as what's in the story. So, you know, when we read books, you know, there's these books that are just amazing, field shifting, but they are awful to read. Yes. And so they can't have the influence that they ought to have. Right. And so I do think learning how to exercise the imagination, even when one is writing nonfiction, is useful. And it's the same thing with music. I learned so much about composing ideas and arguments through the arts, visual arts too. I collect art. I love visual arts too. It's just, I'm always trying to find resources in, in the creative imagination. And you, you learn about, you know, composition is important for an argument, right? Mm. It's not just corralling a bunch of evidence. How are you saying it? How are you helping people get the pieces of it? Yeah, so it's, it's always there. I would eventually like to write fiction though. I mean, I, yeah, I have, that's one day, maybe my fifties. That's what I'll do. So you're going to write a fiction book. Is, is we talking like what genre? What are we thinking here? I mean, it's not, it's not speculative fiction. It's, but it, I'm see, I'm trying to answer this question without telling you what it's about. Cause I've, <laughs> um, you know, like, sort of, it's, a, I, I am interested in a fictional account of the ways in which we look for utopias that are self-defeating, like the way human beings look for the utopic possibility. And that aspiration always gets undermined by greed and competitiveness. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to, trying to think about because I, I don't believe in utopias, but I, I do believe in people trying to build something more beautiful. So that's like the wheelhouse that I'm thinking for the first one. I also like really off the wall stories in reality programming. So that's a piece of it. too. That's interesting. <laughs> I hope, I hope, so if y'all are listening here and this whole time, you've been wildly intimidated by Imani Perry's intellect and her productivity, which you should be just know that she likes some trash TV and some bizarre. Uh, yeah. 90 day fiance. Yeah. That's <laughs> is there some, is there some intellectual connection or do you, is that just your escape? No, it's, 
it's totally an intellectual connection, right? Because it's all about people's fantasies of other human beings as opposed to the reality of who they are. Like that's a huge way that we navigate through life. We tell these stories about other people and what our connection to them will be that exclude those people and Mm. (laughs) in the process. And that's especially true in terms of how we think about people uh, that Americans really have this problem with anybody who comes from any other part of the world. So it definitely has an intellectual component, but it also, I love ridiculousness. You know, I, I love people acting a fool and like, I'm so entertained by it. I will be screaming, laughing at things. And that's, that's just a source of pleasure. What's a book that you read that you wish you had written? Oh, I don't, I don't have that. I feel grateful that people have written those books, but I don't, I don't have the feeling of wishing. Now, I would be, like to be able to do that. Like, so, mm, so okay. Benjamin Lee's Pachinko, I love that book. And I also don't know how she did it. Every time, and I'm rereading it now with my son, I don't know how she kept track of that story. It is this stunning architecture of a multi-generational tale. And I just, I'm in awe. Most books I read, even if I'm not, like I say, I'm not a good, as good a writer as that person, I can imagine how they put it together. I don't know how she did it. That's how I feel about certain rap verses, right? And that's why this what yes. got me to that place. I'd be like, if I sat there long enough, I could have made that. It may take me 10 years, you know, whatever, but I could have. Then there's certain artists, you'd be like, yo, I don't know. I don't know how his brain worked that way or how her brain got to that place. Exactly. That's something else, man. You mentioned um, this book. So I'm actually, that's actually a good time for me to take you to the most torturous part of this interview before we go. It's called Buy It, Borrow It, or Burn It. Oh, Lord, okay. I'll give you three books. One you can buy, one you borrow, one you gotta burn. Ooh, Lord. Now look, I get in so much trouble by saying I don't like certain books, and now you're gonna put me in the situation again. Like, I've had people write letters to newspapers about <laughs> how dare she not like that book. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. I think this will be more torture for you than the listener. Okay. Which is my greatest pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> the first book is Minjin Lee's Pachinko. Yes. The second book is Jose Saramago's Blindness. Come on, dude. And the third one is Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart. I What kind of question is this? <laughs> it is the <laughs> best part of the day because... Anyone who loves books is sufficiently tortured. But you can tell me why. I will answer this, but there will be lots of caveats. Of course. So I'm buying Things Fall Apart because I think it is a book that everybody should read. Period. Okay. Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart, she's, she's buying. Why is that a book everyone should read? Because the thing that is really powerful, of course, is about the encounter with the colonial project. and how that encounter is world-destroying. And that's an encounter that most of the world has had with the West, with empire, right? Um, But it's also an account of profound changes in a society. So, like, I think that reading things fall apart now in the midst of COVID, there's another dimension to it. Things fall apart. All these things that we expected, anticipated, took for granted are falling apart all over the place. So just think it's, it's one of those works that is a, is a, has a moral lesson, a spiritual lesson, a historical lesson. It just, it, I think everybody should read it. I'm borrowing Pachinko because it is a very particular story, but it is so profound about the human condition. And also, I don't take things back to the, the library. So if I borrowed it, I would. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I have books from first grade. So borrowing it is like it's yours. The reason I'll burn blindness is because it's a genius book. It is also terrifying. For lack of better language, that book fucked me up, like at a profound level. You know, it's, it's an account of what happens when people, and it's, again, it's a book that's related to the present moment, but like when People feel scarcity, terror, fear, right? But, like, I would be okay with never reading that book again. (laughs) I don't need to have that experience. Like, it produced, I mean, I was anxious for weeks after it. It's genius, 
but I could extricate myself from that book. I totally understand. And that's Jose Saramago's Blindness, which is a beautiful, wonderful book. And of course, this is a torturous game. We love all these books, which is why. We love all of them. We love yeah. all of them. Mickey Kendall was here a few weeks ago, and she had the same experience with Beloved. She said she ended up burning Beloved, not because she didn't love it, but she said yeah. she had read that book, and she had just had a baby, too. And she said when she was done with that book, like, uh, somebody had to come get the book. <laughs> get this thing away from me. Yeah, get this thing away from me. So I understand that I have been haunted by books in that same way. Again, I know it's a torturous game, but it, it brings me it's some... It's a great game, though. It's fun, right? Because you, you have to think through what you like, what you don't like. But also, any real book lover would never throw anything away, right? We love these books and we cherish these books. But thinking about what matters to you and why is, mm-hmm. its, is its own kind of thing. You said that you have another book on the pike. What's up next? The title isn't definitive yet, but it's a book about the South. The quickest way to describe it is... One, it's in the genre, right? Like, so there's this genre of books where people travel to the South. Like, literally multiple books every year come out in that genre. People don't get tired of it because people are fascinated by the U.S. South. So it is in that genre, and I, it's about traveling. Last couple of years, I've traveled all around the South pretty frequently, and then, of course, my whole life. And it's also an argument that it is actually the real heartland of the nation, mm. that Things have always, even though people posit it as sort of the backwards behind slow moving cousin, it's actually always at the vanguard of where the United States is going. Walmart comes out of the South. Amazon comes from a Southern, right? Like all of the environmental disasters that we're confronting with, they first encounter, right? The oil spills, I mean, all these things that are markers of late capitalism. That's where it starts. And it started there because it was the economic engine of the country that was built around the utter exploitation and disregard of Black people. That's the heart. So if we want things to turn around, that's where we need to go to see. I can't wait for that book. In the meantime, (laughs) while she's finishing that book, y'all, make sure you check out Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Also check out May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem. Vexy thing on gender and liberation and looking for Lorraine, the radiant and radical life of Lorraine Hansberry. All of these books are amazing. Imani, how can people uh, get a hold of you? On Twitter, it's just my name, Imani Perry, same on Instagram. We will make sure people follow you so we can look out for those next couple projects. Awesome. Imani, you are a treasure. I'm so grateful to you for coming, hanging out with me. It's been great. And thank you for being my friend. Always. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Coffee and Books. If you want to purchase any of the books discussed on today's episode, go to UncleBobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com. Make sure to check out all other episodes of Coffee and Books wherever you listen to your podcasts.